And now, your daily dose of debate, breaking news, and uncensored views. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great nation despite the fact that there is great anguish over the prospect that there will be only two choices for president. Either Joe Biden, uh, who would be 81 years old at the time of his uh, new inauguration, and uh, Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump would be 78 years old, maybe 79 by the time of his inauguration. Uh, in any event, uh, there's now evidence and there are voices in the press and the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Examiner elsewhere saying, no, 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 it will not be down to those two. Uh, why not? Well, Daniel Henninger in the Wall Street Journal says because the Democratic Party which still operates like a an old-fashioned political party looking out for its own welfare, will never allow Joe Biden to be their standard bearer this time. So what's going to happen with that? We will get to that. It's a fascinating column called The Stupid Party versus The Evil Party. Uh, we will get to that on The Michael Medved Show. We'll also be speaking to David Frum, who was uh, a former speechwriter for President Bush, a prominent commentator from a conservative point of view for Atlantic Magazine right now. Uh, David Frum is against the attempt to try to strike uh, Donald Trump's name for the ballot. It's not because he's a supporter of Trump. He's not. But he's a supporter of the, giving the American people the choice they want. And clearly there are millions and millions of people. There are 74 million people who voted for President Trump the last time. And uh, people want a chance to vote for him. And to try to use a constitutional provision, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution that was uh, ratified in 1868, to use that, in a bid to keep Trump's name off the ballot, as I've told you before, I think that's a disastrous move. It would move our country, yes, closer to that civil war that so many people fear. Uh, we'll be speaking to David Frum about that. We'll also be speaking to the governor of Utah, Spencer Cox, who is trying to prom pr promote as his uh, position as the head of the National Governors Association a, uh, a a better way to disagree. Uh, disagree better is his motto. What does that mean? We will get to that speaking to Governor Cox, and we will also be speaking to one of the most important voices in the American conversation, uh, Jason Riley. Jason uh, has a new piece about the Biden administration uh, trying to score partisan points based on memories and some of them false memories of the March on Washington some 60 years ago. And uh, Jason insisting that the important thing for black people today is to look at what black people themselves have achieved, not to try to look at all the, quote, great things that the Democratic Party has provided as rewards to people of color. Jason Riley also coming up on the Michael Medved show. Uh, first off, 
the the idea that uh, we are not, in fact, as many people feel, doomed to a Trump versus Biden race, which, uh, again, the overwhelming majority of Americans say they don't want. Uh, according to consistent polling, over 60 percent of the American people say they don't want Biden to run for reelection. It's even higher than that for people who say they don't want Trump to run. They'd like to see something else. And Daniel Henninger writes in his Wonderland column, which comes out every Thursday, it's really it's indispensable. But what he says is an overwhelming majority of the public, more than 60 percent, doesn't want either Joe Biden or Donald Trump to run for president. Yet the two major political parties are tumbling toward that unwanted choice. The late Washington economist Herb Stein articulated what came to be known as Stein's Law. If something cannot go on forever, it will stop. That's my belief about this election. Biden versus Trump is unthinkable. Therefore, it won't happen. I'll put it this way. The party that nominates someone other than these two will win the decisive votes of independence and will win the election. The Republicans look locked into their forget the independence choice. I don't think the Democrats are. It is difficult to disagree with the assumption that the multiple prosecutions are ensuring Mr. Trump's nomination by the Republican Party. Virtually every event related to the four indictments ratchets up the Republican rage meter, another several points for the former president. You know that Trump mugshot was worth millions the moment you saw it. So, too, U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin's decision to plop down the Trump trial in Washington on March 4th, just hours before the Super Tuesday primary. Mr. Trump's capture of the GOP nomination could become secure if their support for him in polls rises into the strong 60 percent or even 70 percent range. That polling momentum propelled by anti-prosecution rage could produce early fait accompli. Trump wins in Iowa, New Hampshire, and then South Carolina on February 24th. And they have another piece like this in the New York Times about the great likelihood that Trump would have the nomination locked down before his trial even begins on March 4th in Washington, D.C., because they will have already had those early primaries in Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina. Once Democrats conclude the Republican Party has arrived at a point of no return on a Trump candidacy, it will be time for another Clyburn moment. Now, what does Hanger mean by a Clyburn moment? He says, ahead of the February 2020 Democratic primary in South Carolina, Representative Jim Clyburn, reflecting the Democratic establishment consensus, pulled the plug on then-front-runner Senator Bernie Sanders as unelectable in a general election and endorsed Joe Biden. To win in 2024, they will pull the plug on Joe Biden. Democratic Representative Dean Phillips of Minnesota is already laying the groundwork, saying recently, quote, 
the Democrats are telling me that they want not a coronation, but they want a competition. As widely reported, some 50% of Democrats don't want Mr. Biden to run. The party that wins next year could set the country's direction for a generation, writes Henninger. Democrats won't let Mr. Biden's weaknesses, let alone Kamala Harris's weaknesses, put their agenda at risk. Unlike the uh, Clyburn endorsement, there won't be any coronation. Democrats can't explicitly throw over Kamala Harris, but they can open their primaries to an array of Democratic governors who would evade responsibility for Mr. Biden's economic policies. California's Gavin Newsom, Michigan's Gretchen Whitmer, North Carolina's Roy Cooper, Colorado's Jared Polis, Pennsylvania's Josh Shapiro, New Jersey's Phil Murphy, or Illinois' J.B. Pritzker. Democrats don't have to win big. They just have to win. And most of these governments, governors, with the party and its donor base behind them, could pull across a winning margin of independence, desiring a minimally acceptable alternative to voting for the Trump tumult. Uh, then they would likely win again in 2028. Because remember, everybody except for Trump can run for a second term if this is their first term as president. So how does this impact the uh, question of faith in America? Uh, we will be getting to that with uh, Russell Moore, a former Baptist leader, coming up on The Michael Medved Show. Michael Medved show uh, talking about the uh, idea that Daniel Henninger puts forward and he puts forward the idea that uh, he thinks that the Democrats are more likely to win this election because they're more likely to actually have the discipline and the determination to dump their uh, front runner. Their front runner is the incumbent president. Uh, whose name is Joe Biden. And uh, a lot of people believe that once you're an incumbent president, you have so many levers of power that even if all of the political bosses in the Democratic Party decide no more Biden, uh, they are going to have a tough time. What are they going to replace him with Robert Kennedy Jr. right now, who, along with Marianne Williamson, who's been a guest on this show, uh, are the only people running against uh, Joe Biden. Uh, and no, I don't think Robert Kennedy is going to be the nominee. Uh, what Daniel Henniger thinks is they're going to open the nomination up. Uh, there will be one of the prominent Democratic governors, uh, probably Gretchen Whitmer or Gavin Newsom or someone of that nature. And uh, it'll be that individual against President Trump, who is overwhelmingly likely, according to most prognosticators and pollsters uh, to win the Republican nomination. Today, uh, Trump uh, continued to issue uh, uh, dozens, literally dozens, of uh, uh, videos on Truth Social. And he also uh, overcame or responded to some criticism that he received yesterday for not saying anything about Hurricane Adalia and the victims of Hurricane Adalia. Today he had a very nice uh, truth that he put out. It says simply, there's nothing wrong with it. 
He says, uh, our hearts go out to everyone impacted by Hurricane Idalia. I urge everyone to listen to your local officials. Good. Heed all warnings and prioritize the safety of yourself and your loved ones. I've witnessed the courage, strength, and spirit of the great people of Florida many times over the years, says the former president. Together they will recover and rebuild, but in the meantime, be safe. Love and respect to everyone. God bless you all, with an exclamation point, uh, signed Donald J. Trump. A real Donald J. Trump. And uh, there's also a um, message from Ron DeSantis, which is a strong message. And uh, there can be no question at all that Ron DeSantis, uh, for his very decisive and energetic response to these hurricane horrors, that he is gaining uh, a little bit of respect from people who may not have felt much respect for him. And uh, partially, uh, he has been speaking very regularly to Joe Biden, and they're both praising one another for doing the kinds of tasks, the kinds of relief efforts that need to be done. Uh, Joe Biden today earlier had a, uh, a something of a press conference, a little mini press conference over at the FEMA headquarters where he was talking more about the plans to help people in Republican territory in uh, Florida and uh, and Georgia and uh, uh, South Carolina. Uh, is Georgia still Republican territory? It, arguably it is. Certainly it is. Uh, here was Ron DeSantis issuing a warning to potential looters uh, that was emphatic. This is clip one. I'd also just remind potential looters that people, you never know what you're walking into. People have a right to defend their property. Uh, this part of Florida, you got a lot of advocates and some proponents of the Second Amendment. And I've seen signs in different people's yards in the past after these disasters. And I would say it's probably here. You loot, we shoot. You never know what's behind that door. If you go break into somebody's house and you're trying to loot, uh, these are people that are going to be able to defend themselves and their families. So, so I would not do it. Uh, we are going to hold you accountable from a law enforcement perspective at a minimum, and it could even be worse than that, depending on what's behind that door. So let's all band together and lift people up and not try to take advantage of a difficult situation. Okay, I, I don't believe there has been any major reporting about major incidents of, of looting, uh, certainly not yet. Uh, and that, of course, is a very good thing. Uh, meanwhile, there is a another issue that has gotten a shockingly large amount of attention. In fact, I can't believe the attention it's gotten. We talked about it on the air the other day. Uh, there was a statement by George Koob, who was director of the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. And... Uh, the Dr. Koob was suggesting that the U.S. government should perhaps, not even definitively, but perhaps consider adopting Canada's recommendation for people to uh, limit their drinking and to limit, for instance, their consumption of beer to two beers per week. And uh, there are many people 
out there, uh, I will admit, including myself, who um, drink somewhat more than that. And, uh, (laughs) I mean, not 20, but somewhat more than two beers a week. But this is just a suggestion. Uh, Ted Cruz obviously read one of the Internet distortions of this. That No one is suggesting that we make a law, that we make a rule, that we impose an extra tax. These are health suggestions. And, uh, again, the American people very readily and regularly ignore health suggestions. But uh, Ted Cruz actually uh, got a lot of grief from out there in the in the Twitter verse, they don't call us that anymore. It has to be, I guess, the X verse now, because it's X. But uh, Ted Cruz uh, was uh, doing a beer segment as he was gulping beer together with Eric Bowling on Newsmax. And why the hell does Biden have an alcohol czar? We we don't need czars in the United States. But number two, what is it with liberals that want to control every damn aspect of your life? Biden came in. One of the first things they wanted to do was ban gas stoves. New York State has now done that for new construction. They're trying to go after and regulate ceiling fans. I got to tell you, it's hot in Texas. We don't want to get rid of our ceiling fans. And now these idiots have come out and said, drink two beers a week that's their guideline well i gotta tell you if they want us to drink two beers a week frankly they can kiss my ass go get drunk okay uh the uh, uh cruise it, it reports in media it was accompanied by a crowd of people uh behind him who took a synchronized swig of beer just as he did and a bowling followed shortly thereafter the segment made its way to x the platform known as Twitter, where critics trashed the senator's antics as performative. And uh, somebody sent him David Schuster. The federal government also recommends against drinking paint thinner. Can we arrange for Ted Cruz to defy that as well? How about skydiving with old unchecked parachutes, brushing teeth with sandpaper, riding in a barrel over Niagara Falls? What else? We'll get to it on the MedVet Show. Michael Medved show. It is a pleasure to uh, welcome back to the show Pastor Russell Moore, who is one of the most prominent voices in American Christianity. He's a theologian. He's a minister. He's the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today, and he previously served as president of of the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. And Southern Baptist Convention for a long time has been the largest Protestant denomination in the country, uh, second only to the uh, Roman Catholic Church in terms of the millions of adherents. Uh, He is the author of a new book which has uh, stirred extremely passionate reaction, extremely passionate reaction, because it takes the position that American evangelical Christianity has lost its way. Uh, The book is called Losing Our Religion, an altar call for evangelical America. Would I be right, 
Pastor Moore in saying that this book is actually intended uh, as an altar call, if you will, for America in general and not just for evangelicals? Yes, I think there's a sense in which uh, the rest of the world is, is called to kind of listen in to what's happening in evangelical Christianity because it's it's happening everywhere else as well. What's happening? What went wrong? Why are there uh, literally almost every day there are new polls, surveys, statistics that indicate the retreat of faith, more and more people uh, abandoning uh, church membership, uh, reduced church attendance. Why is that happening? Well, I think part of it is a general secularization uh, of the United States, a, a phenomenon you've been uh, writing and speaking about for a very long time, even before it was perceptible. And I think there were a lot of people who were saying, oh, that'll never, that'll never be the case in America. And uh, it is especially if you look demographically uh, going down to the younger ages. But I also think that there's been a disillusionment uh, that comes. I talk every day to people who are just at the precipice of, of walking out because they've started to think, well, is the church really just politics? Uh, or they've seen the, um, the sexual abuse cover-ups and the uh, high-profile uh, scandals and uh, authoritarian uh, pastors and so forth, and are, are starting to wonder, is that all there is? Which, uh, again, is a painful question. One of the uh, tendencies that you uh, take aim at in in the book uh, losing our religion the book is posted up at our web website at michaelmedved.com uh one of the tendencies you take aim at and believe needs to be corrected for the health of the country and the health of uh, the faith community generally is tribalism uh, what's wrong with tribalism well i think we've we've started to define our sense of belonging in terms of uh, who we who we're not and i think that you have increasingly americans who are really are proving that they're on the side that they're on uh, by how hyperbolic and apocalyptic they can sound about the other side and uh, it's it's really created a kind of limbic response uh, in the United States, I'm, I'm particularly uh, concerned in the evangelical community when I start to hear people using spiritual warfare language uh, about their neighbors and their uh, fellow citizens. I think that's a uh, any time that we have a dehumanization of people, we're we're headed on a, a very bad trajectory. You talk about dehumanization. Uh, it's literally, for many people, demonization, isn't it? Uh, the implication being that uh, people who are opposed to you on some uh, very often political difference or cultural difference, uh, people are motivated by demonic forces. Yeah, that, and that's often uh, quite, quite literally uh, articulated in this case. And I think it's also that we've given up on even the possibility of persuasion. And some of that has to do, I think, with the fact that we've forgotten 
how people actually change their minds on anything. I mean, if you think of uh, situations where you or I uh, may have changed our minds on something, uh, I would I would almost guarantee in everybody's case it didn't happen at the end of a fifteen or twenty minute argument, much less for being humiliated on on social media. It usually happened over a long process of kind of mulling something uh, through, and uh, and I think that in many corners of American life we just we don't even hold the possibility of that, uh, and we also don't realize that there's also this of um, uh, American life as as video game, uh, where one's enemies are going to be vanquished one once and for all. So you know, th- this is this is now over. The people who are opposed to me have been defeated and they're gone. Which is, of course, not the way that things work in American life, nor should they. And politically, isn't that uh, reflected in the? tendency on both sides now and it's it's very noisy on both sides which is lock him up lock her up lock them up where people i i know president trump was talking yesterday about seriously come when he's coming to power trying to get revenge retribution as a word that he likes uh on uh some of his political rivals uh that's not really a christian idea is it no, and uh, and it, but it, but it's something that really fits with the spirit of the age right now, uh, which is a resentment, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that there's been this eclipse of the meaning of life, uh, or, or the pursuit of happiness, as the Declaration of Independence would would put it. There's been a a sense of replacing that with something that feels. Uh, alive and of course resentment and and fear those things actually can feel good for a little while uh, but they're not sustainable and they end up not just hurting other people they hurt the person who's who's holding that resentment ultimately and that's that's one of the reasons why we look around at the mental health crisis that we have and the addiction crisis that we have something's really gone wrong and there's a better way now, there certainly is a better way for reaching young people. When you look at across denominations, the particular problem with adherence to uh, some kind of religious loyalty, some kind of religious prospect, uh, some kind of religious practice, that uh, that concentrates very directly on younger generations. So what do you do? What needs to be done? That's the the real question that is answered in very provocative ways and unexpected ways in Losing Our Religion. The subtitle is An Altar Call for Evangelical uh, America. The author is Russell Moore, who is the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today and uh, was formerly, for many years, president of the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Uh, what needs to be changed? Uh, obviously, part of what religion is about is the business of changing hearts, of improving people, improving the world. How do you do it? Uh, there are chapters in this book on so many aspects of that needed uplift and improvement. We will get to that with Russell Moore. You can call us if you are so moved, 1-800-955-1776.
The Michael Medved Show. All across America. It's an honor to talk to you because I think you got the best talk show in the, in the United States. Thank um, you. I agree. This is The Michael Medved Show. 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. somewhat different view than the song uh, the losing our religion is the name of the book Russell Moore uh, pastor Russell Moore is uh, the author he is the editor of Christianity today and uh, we we're talking about the declines in church affiliation and belief and involvement in religious practices like Bible study uh, all of this is seems to be in retreat, uh, and particularly among the younger generation, which, of course, is very serious because that's the future. And one of the things that you acknowledge in the book is, yes, there is an alarming view of what's happening to faith communities across the country, but it's not everybody and it's not everywhere. There are some great successes out there in terms of revival, rejuvenation, uh, renewal. And uh, that's really what uh, Christianity and what the whole Judeo-Christian tradition should be about. Uh, Russell Moore, what are some of the examples of things that are working in American religious life? that can help to illuminate uh, a path to uh, renewal? Well, one, one of the things that I've seen uh, working with reaching the next generation is to take them seriously in terms of responsibility. Uh, I think there's a, a mentality that sees the next generation as consumers, that we're to, to give uh, religious information and 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 give them uh, opportunities to connect with each other and so forth and that's that's certainly part of it. But I found the places that younger people really resonate with are those places that say we need you and uh, and we're going to include you within uh, the membership of the body by actually giving you responsibility and also holding you accountable to that and to, to teach you how to do it. And that's what I found. Uh, I mean, I think there are a lot of older Christians particularly who think that the younger generations don't want anything to do with them. And the number one question I get asked all the time uh, by 20-something uh, Christians is, how do I find a mentor? It's too too awkward just to walk up and say, will you mentor me? So how how do I do that? They desperately want that. And the places that are taking that seriously are thriving. And uh, how do you take that drive for for a mentor um, more seriously, uh, especially when, as you as you recognize in the book, the book again is called "Losing Our Religion." You recognize in the book uh, there have been abundant scandals uh, yeah. with 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 many churches, and it is uh, hardly limited to evangelical churches. I mean, scandals everywhere in every denomination but uh uh 
how does that comport with this need for and drive for uh, an appropriate mentor? Well, I think it starts with having the integrity of the the congregation to be honest about that. And uh, often what happens instead is that there's institutional self-protection. And that means just kind of turning a blind eye, not uh, not honestly disclosing what's happening. Of course, as you mentioned, that's happening in almost every institution in American life. But a congregation that actually deals honestly, here are the here are the problems that we are having or have had. That goes a long way in restoring credibility, along with here's how we're going to keep that from happening again. Uh, and, and often it's kind of counterintuitive. Um, I had uh, a pastor uh, call me one day. They had a major uh, scandal that they had discovered that had happened in their church. And I said, uh, call the media and let let the media know what's uh, happening here so that the people in your community know. And he said, well, I don't, I don't want the people in my community to know that uh, this, they're going to think, oh, that's that church where some bad things happen. And I said, actually, I think you'll find your community will start to trust you more if they know that you're not going to cover things up and hide them from them. And and that's exactly what happened. And uh, uh, did that was there a, a change in personnel and a change in atmosphere at this particular institution? Well, at this at this church, it, it was something that had happened uh, long ago in the past. But they were disclosing to the congregation and to everyone else, "We've discovered this happened. Here are the ways that we're going to try to make sure that never happens again." And uh, they had uh, people from the community who started to to come into that church because they were saying, "Okay, they actually do see that this can be a problem. The places that are really dangerous are the places that think they're invulnerable." Uh, nothing like that can happen to us. And so they just ignore it. That's, that's what really gets dangerous. Uh, you, uh, uh, you talk about, uh, the culture wars and, uh, you don't have a particularly, uh, fond view of, uh, the culture wars and the impact on actually changing, uplifting people. Uh, making them uh, uh, better people, better uh, believers. Uh, what's wrong with the culture wars? Well, I think that that stance uh, shifts how we see ourselves in relation to uh, our communities and to our neighbors. And, and that's especially true when it comes with a, a kind of lack of confidence in one's own uh, religion which uh, leads to this sort of frenzied uh, reaction to people who, who disagree with us on, on various things. And also, is culture wars are easier than uh, moral formation. It, it doesn't take a lot just to scream, look at my enemies. Uh, it does take a lot to cultivate the kind of, um, the kind of personal uh, spirituality and, and holiness that really is compelling to the outside world. I think that uh, one of the most challenging chapters in in the book, the book is called Losing Our Religion, the author is Pastor Russell Moore, is the concluding chapter, which uh, is called Losing Our Stability, and the subtitle is How Revival Can Save Us from Nostalgia. Uh, why do we need saving, rescue from nostalgia? Well, I think that, I think that we're... 
uh, often what we can do is kind of just whitewash uh, the past uh, instead of seeing how revival really works is with a repentance, uh, and often it's with a lot of disruption and a lot of change. And I think that's what's what's kind of scary is that we're we're at a point where things are uh, things are going to have to change uh, rather dramatically, and that's that's scary uh, to to a lot of people. But that's that's how revival works. And I think there's a kind of revival that people want, which is just a resumption of the status quo, that actually uh, can make things a lot worse by just uh, taking the worst aspects of the past and in, and uh, exporting them into the future. That's that's not what revival is biblically, I don't think. Uh, what, what's interesting is that uh, this is the time of year in the Jewish tradition uh, that we're coming up to the high holy days where the entire fi- uh, theme is revival and repentance. The term that is usually used for repentance is the Hebrew word tshuva, which really means return, uh, coming back. Uh, And it's not, again, just coming back to something that is nostalgic and old. It's uh, coming back uh, to the source of all uplift and and faith and, and goodness and the future. Uh, which is which is God? Uh, the the book you're not afraid to preach in the pages of losing our religion. Well, I think I think that when it comes to that kind of renewal and and repentance, I mean Jesus talked about it as a losing of a first love. Uh, so there's a way in which we can start taking things for granted. And then they just become cold, dead embers, uh, and we really need to be reawakened. And, and one of the things that the Jewish tradition has uh, that we've, we've kind of lost in a lot of places in American Christianity is that uh, regular sense of reminder and of rites of passage and markers of what it means to live that kind of life. Uh, The book, uh, which is full of uh, all kinds of markers, rites of passage, and wisdom, is called Losing Our Religion, subtitle An Altar Call for Evangelical America. Russell Moore, thank you for your contribution to the conversation and ongoing contribution to this greatest nation on God's green earth. 